stop booking around. I'm John Cronshaw. And I'm Russell Evans. So today I thought we could talk about archetypes and stereotypes and how best to use them in our writing. Probably best starting off talking about what the difference is. Now, they're both very similar. A archetype is essentially a framework which allows certain character types to exist. So this can be a very broad framework, but certain properties will repeat themselves. So something like a hero mm-hmm. or a trickster, they are archetypical characters. A dragon is an archetypical character, but each of their iterations will be different. And a stereotype is something a bit more crude, let's say. It's a shorthand that is culturally relevant. So we could use a stereotype in an offensive way. This would be where you make assumptions about a culture or a certain type of person, and you then extrapolate based on that. So you say, this person is like this, therefore all people like that have that behavior. And so this can be damaging and it can be offensive. But stereotypes can actually be useful if handled correctly. So that's what I want to talk about really today with you. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so yeah, no, no pressure. It's not a delicate subject at all. Or oh no, it's going to be absolutely fine. And yeah, yeah. So uh, <laughs> if you're making stereotypes about races, nationalities, mm. sexual orientations, people with disabilities, anyone <laughs> really based on that kind of group, then okay, you're going to be offending people. You're going to get yeah. yourself in trouble. Avoid that. <laughs> that's, that's my first bit of I'm, advice. Just, let me just note that down. Yeah, yeah. So, Avoid yeah, especially that, don't be a dick with stereotypes. Yeah, don't be a dick. But let's say, for example, things like a drunk is a stereotype. If you're sort of talking about conscious life choices people have made and that if those have turned them into stereotypes, I think it's a bit, I don't know if it's easier, but I think it's a bit more acceptable because it yeah. seems as though those people have, have taken that uh, responsibility on themselves to be that stereotype. This could be something like the corrupt cop, the embittered army general. You know, it's like, okay, they're stereotypes, they're shorthands, but we can immediately get a picture of this character because of it. And that can be helpful, especially in a scene, say in a Western, and you've got the town drunk. We know what the town drunk is going to look like. We know that they will have a role which is like comic relief, or it's going to be a role of, okay, they're going to get killed. <laughs> it does kind of verge into cliche sometimes, but it can also be used for pastiche. The geek as well, that's another stereotype. Yes. And some people use these stereotypes as badges as well. Yeah, some people do cling on to them as, like, when they look for social groups and such like that, sometimes, unfortunately, people identify with stereotypes, maybe willingly or sort of unknowingly. And people do gravitate towards them as a way to kind of give themselves an identity. Well, a stereotype tends to be something that's boiled down very simply, so it would essentially give someone a, a simple list of criteria they would have to meet to be considered maybe part of that group or to be able yeah. to identify as that particular thing. Things like the jock is, mm-hmm. is a great mm-hmm. example of a stereotype. I mean, yeah, the point is, though, with all of these things is it's shorthand and it's a shortcut and you're going to do much better, more sophisticated writing if you don't subscribe to them, but you can play around with them as well. So you are working with that stereotype, but you might be working against that stereotype. But then you can do the thing where you try so hard to subvert a stereotype that it comes across that you're overly aware and still pushing that stereotype, if that makes sense. You know, I'm coming at this with someone who is visually impaired and it's like, 
I get so annoyed when I see the mystical blind man, magical blind man kind of figures like, oh, he's blind, but he can really see. (laughs) You know, like those kind of stereotypes, it's it's almost like, okay, this is your weakness, but really it's your strength. So you're not a big fan of Blind Fury starring Rudger Hauer? No, no. So I think I think the only uh, good thing he did was Blade Runner, to be honest. But there we go. Um, yeah, <laughs> I'm trying to think, but it's the only thing that really sticks out. That and Blind Fury. <laughs> yeah, stereotypes. I think we get it. We get how they can be used. Mm. Now I love archetypes, and I think there's a big thing in writing, and it's a bit of a misconception in a way. There's that thing of like you've got to be original, 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 original. You know, it's like the push towards originality as some kind of end in itself. And this is like, you know, how I talk about story structure as being, okay, this is a really useful, positive thing that will help you develop creativity. I also think thinking about your characters as archetypes, especially when you've got a bigger cast of characters, is actually really helpful because it's like, if you've got three characters in your book that are all doing the hero role and you've got no other character types, that is going to make for a really dull story. In Joseph Campbell's Hero with a Thousand Faces, which is basically where they get the monomyth, the hero's journey, he talks about eight archetypes. You know, these should be in most heroic tales. So you'll have the hero, obviously. Mm -hmm. So this is your protagonist. This is your central person. This is, you know, Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. This is Luke Skywalker. This is Alice in Alice in Wonderland. You know, it's that kind of character. What I find with archetypes as well is there's always a light and dark version of these characters. So a a light hero would be someone like Alice from Alice in Wonderland, Mm. where it's all goodness. There's all goodness. But then you get the anti-hero figures and things like that. Like Robocop. (laughs) Yeah, he would be a dark hero character. And then, of course, you've got the mentor characters as well. So, okay, Obi-Wan Kenobi. Morpheus in the Matrix. Yep. Dumbledore. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> basically what you need is just some old white dude with a beard. That's your, your mentor character. Even Morpheus, yeah. Yeah. Because he, uh, he, he qualifies as an old white dude with a beard. Definitely, definitely. He's, yeah, because he's not... They actually managed to avoid the magical Negro stereotype with Morpheus well, didn't they? Yeah. No, no, that was good. That was good. That's why I love that film. Mm-hmm. I don't like the other films in that series. But... That's a discussion for another day because yeah, I feel that yeah. they have uh, redeeming points. But anyway... Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's those characters who help to direct our main character on the way. This is, oh, what's his name in The Hunger Games? The drunk guy. I have yeah. no idea. Yeah. <laughs> so Woody, Woody Harrelson. Yeah, yeah. So it's Woody Harrelson, yeah. Yoda as well, obviously. And then you get the allies. So these are the people, like Samwise in Lord of the Rings. It's like Samwell in, Harley, um, in Game of Thrones. Yeah. Yeah. Robin, it's his psychic character. And, you know, all of these, we know what they are, and there's so many different iterations of them that they are almost like low-resolution character types that you can use. The Herald is another one. Now, this is one that you don't get that obviously. Sometimes it can just be literally, you know, the Herald in Star Wars is R2-D2. Yes. Because it's as soon as Luke sees a projected image of Leia, That is how the story kicks off. This is in something like Cinderella. This is basically the guy who delivers the message saying, come to the ball. It makes the story move in a different direction. They can just be really, as I say, just low-level characters who maybe have one role. They could be the person who knock at the door and go, 
sorry to inform you that your father's died or, you know, that kind of thing. They're, they're almost like a, a plot device with more um, depth. <laughs> Not necessarily even with depth, you know. Yeah. It can really be they've got one role and that is to make the story happen. And then you get favourite kind of characters for me, actually, the trickster characters. So this is people like Loki. This is people like Athena when she has her feud with Arachne <laughs> with, over the tapestries and stuff. So, yes. Um, and again, it's this light and dark thing. So you can have the trickster who does good things, but using trickery in order to improve humanity. Mm. And then you've got the reverse of that, which is the evil trickster, which is, you know, this is Lucifer, you know, this is Satan. This is the dark characters who will try and fool you into doing things, you know, like a, an yes. evil genie kind uh, of Like thing. a force for subversion. Yeah. But I think they, they can be really interesting characters like Luna Lovegood in Harry Potter is a good example. So yeah. Someone who is, or, or Dobby from Harry Potter, actually. <laughs> you know, just kind of, sometimes they're comic relief, sometimes they do daft things, but ultimately is to help. And yeah, it's the trickery and the... You're not sort of positioned to take them seriously based on their demeanour. It's sort of their actions. They play a very useful role. Instead. Yeah, but it's, it's like you're not like you, you know you're meant to take the hero seriously, or you're meant to take the, the villain seriously, unless you're obviously writing some kind of comedy or specifically for laughs. Mm. But yeah, like the tri- the trickster is often presented as more, even if they're evil trickster, they tend to be presented as more light-hearted and a bit more chaotic and less likely to present serious reasons for what they're doing. I mean, I think some some of the best tricksters like. Let's just go with Loki. You know, on the surface, he just wants chaos and he appears to be selfish and just want things for himself. But he's actually got a fairly tragic backstory. And if you look at it and boil it down, it's motivated by his want to prove himself to be good enough to rule. You know, he doesn't go on about that all the time. He does occasionally, obviously, but (laughs) most of the time he's too busy being the trickster, being kind of flighty and mercurial with people and that's what you see sort of by his his demeanor but his nature is a lot more sort of informed by more tragic events and then you know you get the shapeshifter then and this can be a literal shapeshifter but then it's it's someone who is more you know as you say like mercurial more kind of difficult to pin down Mm. now i find these like well i was thinking about this and this goes back to when we were talking about the dungeons and dragons stuff and i think these characters are your chaotic neutral kind of characters. Yeah. So these are the people who we can't quite figure out. So someone like Catwoman, someone like Gollum, mm. who isn't necessarily evil. Like Catwoman isn't evil. She does things that are kind of suitable for her, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And so she's a difficult character to pin down. And I think that's the same with Lando Calrissian. I think he could be falling under this shapeshifter character. Yeah. Um, you I know, think shapeshifters so- are sort of loyal to their own internal logic first. Mm. In a way, if we call it logic, I, you know what I mean? Like you look at Gollum and not a lot of logic there, but he has he has an internal drive. Yeah. Um, yeah. Obviously, it's it's the ring, but then you get the, the, so the two sides of Gollum is all for the ring and then trying to regain himself as Smeagol, like maybe the chance of that redemption. And he shifts between those two literal personalities. Maybe something like Maui. He's a literal shapeshifter as well. He he can transform into different types of creatures in order to fulfil whatever he needs to do. Yeah. 
going back to Harry Potter as well, another great shapeshifter is Snape because his character, we don't know all the way through whether he's evil, whether he's good, whether he's neutral. And it's really hard. Again, it's this, this thing of like not being able to pin him down, not being sure of his deeper motivations. Yeah, I get, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, I suppose in a way it's another way of looking at it is that they are a character that the audience like you said, they're not entirely sure of why they're doing what they're doing. They can only see the sort of the impact of their actions. But you st- like, even if they're doing something that seems, shall we say, evil or morally questionable, it's still the idea of like, but why? Like, what is it about? Are they are they good? Are they bad? You, you said about Maui. Even though he's it's a Disney film and he's obviously going to be a good guy. He doesn't traditionally fit that role straight away. He's really all just about sorting himself out. He's about a selfish need as opposed to his traditional sort of more magnanimous role that's informed by his past, but you don't see that straight away. What All you see is that he appears to be a certain type of character. Next, we have the Guardian. <laughs> so, yeah, sticking with uh, Moana, this will be the crab. <laughs> <laughs> now the shiny, yes. yeah, the, the David Bowie crab. <laughs> but yeah, so he is literally in the way of getting Mary's hook. Mm. So he's got that as part of his collection of shiny things. You know, he's got the Black Knight in Monty Python and <laughs> Holy Grail. He's brilliant. You know, and he's yeah. he, he's a guardian who loses several limbs. And he's on. almost like the stereotype of the guardian taken to the nth degree, and it's almost like no character whatsoever and only function and made into a joke because of his dogged sort of um, resistance to defeat, which obviously most stories, once you defeat the Black Knight, they stand down and they're like, yes, you are worthy. But this Black Knight is is almost such a plot device in and of himself (laughs) that it's become like this sort of parody folded in and on itself that you can't accept defeat. Well, this is what I was saying earlier about how you can use the stereotype for pastiche. Mm. So it's like you push it to that nth level and it's, yeah, it's great. Labyrinth, you know, in Labyrinth with... David Bowie. Just, mm-hmm. <laughs> now we're talking about David Bowie. I don't know if you remember in that there's a scene with the doors. Yes. The pair of doors and the, the light to each other. Like, that's a Guardian thing. It's like, okay, if you're going to get past this point of the story, you need to do this. And it could be the doorknob in Alice in Wonderland. I think they tend to represent a trial or a test for the main character, don't yeah. they? You know, maybe we should do an episode about the hero's journey at some point. You know, mm. this is a good foundation to it in a way. You've got someone like Heimdall in Thor, for mm-hmm. example. Like, they Guardian characters, you know, solid wall-like things that are in the way. But Almost yeah. fixed points. Yeah, yeah. And then the final archetype in the hero's journey, Joseph Campbell pointed out, was the shadow. I don't know if you remember back, way, way back. This was when we were talking about how to construct a interesting conflict between your protagonist and your antagonist to have them a, a kind of shadow version of the yes. protagonist. It's the Darth Vader, it's the Voldemort, it's the Sephiroth, it's, what's his name, Sauron in Lord of the Rings, Maleficent from Sleeping Beauty. You know, it's that kind of, they're so like the person in a way, they share a lot of traits and they could easily go in that direction. And so mm-hmm. it's a reflection, it's the shadow self, it's going back to Jung. You know, it's this Jungian archetype of we all have our shadow selves and it's whether we choose to kind of embrace that or 
to steer away from it and actually live a moral life. Yeah, and it, it allows for a sort of, even though it's not always necessarily done literally, it uh, allows for a philosophical conflict and not just sort of, you know, whatever events happen in the story. Like when you look at two characters that are similar but almost diametrically opposed in the, maybe the way they, they go about their goals... I mean, you could say Batman and the Joker are a Batman great... Batman and the Joker, definitely. They're, they're yeah. a really great um, light and shadow sort of thing that's also kind of turned on its head because Batman is all shadow and the Joker is supposed to be about humour and laughs, but obviously yeah. one is a terrible psychopath and the other is a not-so-terrible psychopath. <laughs> <laughs> Which is something I'd actually like to touch upon in the future is non-typical characters because, like, Batman is a psychopath. There's no real argument there but what it's doing is it's showing that a psychopath isn't necessarily a crazy person isn't necessarily like evil and and wants to wear people's faces like mat like party masks or anything like that i mean you say it's non-typical but i do actually think it's almost like the hooker with a heart of gold kind of thing it is the actually yeah that's a good the, point it, it is a trope you know we've got it in dexter we've got it in other places where you've got the killer doing it for the right reasons or yes, the, yeah. the good killer. I don't know what you call it, the good psycho or something like that. Anime and manga and just generally Eastern cinema goes into this a lot because of the whole idea of death and, you know, samurais and such, you know, have, having to be willing to kill in yeah. order to protect your ideals and protect your lord and, and so forth and so on. It's the idea that you can't make excuses for it. You have to embrace it for what it is. And I think that a lot of the time, like evil characters or evil psychopaths, they don't necessarily make excuses, but they tend to have contrived reasons. I mean, the Ronin thing, I think that falls into a typical category, actually. I I would put the Ronin alongside the gunslinger. Do you know what I mean? The lone wolf kind of character. Well, all those like Sergio Leone films and such, and uh, and you know the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, Fistful of Dogs, oh, yeah, yeah. they're all yeah. based on Akira Kurosawa's samurai films because the Gunslinger and the Samurai. Oh, yeah. yeah, that makes sense actually. Yeah, yeah they are right. the Gunslinger and the Samurai are the same character. They are yeah. someone in, living in an age that no longer accepts or really wants violence or people like willing to kill, but they don't know anything else. So they are trying to live a decent life, and yet because they are so proficient at what they do, they can't help be, but be dragged into these situations either as a target or as a bodyguard. But ultimately, they will still have to kill, but they have to maybe philosophize more or grow more as a character not justify, but explain it or to, to put this terrible ability they have to a good use and make it a good thing instead of it just being i'm a person that learned how to kill in the most proficient way available to me this goes back to the kind of light and dark doesn't it i mean Mm -hmm. okay you've got the psychopath you get the light psychopath the dark psychopath you get the gunslinger you know they might be doing it to save a village from you know some kind of raiders or something like that yeah just to touch on that like yojimbo is a good example in which you've got a ronin wanders into town seems completely self-serving decides to play off the two uh rival gangs in town against themselves in order to make money and then the people he's who have kind of put him up get dragged into it so he decides that he understands what he's done and then starts to act for the good of those people instead of to just make money in his role. Yeah, other like archetypes, I suppose, as well. You've got like the rebel, you know, a rebel character can be 
the freedom fighter, or it could be the terrorist, or it could be the gangster. It could be, you know, again, it's this light and dark thing. It could be the Fonz, you know, <laughs> he's a rebel. He's got his white T-shirt, leather jacket. He's got the biker look, the James Dean thing going on. Okay, we know what a rebel is. We know what they're going to do in a story, whether it's light or dark. We know what a trickster's going to do in a story. And you want a mix of these things. You've got the mother, maid, and crone archetypes as well, which is the representations of women. Again, these are crude, but you can use them as a starting point. And it's the same with masculine, feminine. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got the light feminine, which is seen as the kind of nurturing, the life giving. Like the Madonna. Yeah. And then you've got the dark feminine, which is the kind of toxic femininity. This is the femme fatale and all that kind of stuff. And then masculinity as well. You know, you have the thing about patriarchy being a bad thing, but, you know, along with the patriarchal society, which is oppressive, you've also got the loving father. Mm-hmm. You've also got the nurturing father. So these things aren't simple. It's a low resolution starting point, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, dragons. I love dragons. <laughs> <laughs> like dragons as an archetype are brilliant mm. because they bring together all our fears in one creature in one predator so we've got the fear of things that fly and come at us from the sky you got the fear of the snake and the lizard and the crocodile and all that stuff you yeah got the fear of the cat-like creatures on land that will eat us and bite us and you've got the fear of fire so it's like all these monstrous things and what do you get what what the dragons do it's like they defend what is valuable so it's like okay we have to defeat all of our fears if we're going to get value in life that's what the dragon archetype is and it's just a crazy symbol that is also a really cool lesson that is like it's universal we get dragons in all cultures yeah which is when you think about that is just really insane that as a species in different separate parts of the world we all came up with this idea of the ultimate predator that guards the beautiful virgin or it guards the gold, the entrance the to the entrance to heaven, or yeah, it's yeah, yeah. They, they reappear in many ways as as guardians. Oh, another part of dragons is there's also like an alien aspect to them in that they are often depicted as being intelligent beings, but also above us. Like yeah, they've been around for so long, or they've seen so much, or they're they're just by default and, you know, should we say magical biological makeup in that they are leaps and bounds ahead of our ability to, to, to think and philosophize and to see the big picture and have perspective. They play many roles as well because sometimes they can be the guardian. Sometimes they can be the herald. It's not always about defeating the dragon, but mm. I suppose in some ways, metaphorically, a lot of things are about defeating the dragon. Kind of, really, aren't I mean, they? yeah. I mean, this, this is why I really like watching How to Train Your Dragon with my son. It's like, yeah. that gets flipped on its head. Yes, exactly. You know, he doesn't defeat the dragon, he befriends a dragon. Yeah. Which is just a really cool way of doing it. So, yeah, uh, I don't know. I just find that the, the dragon is a really deep, interesting thing that my theories about where that symbolism coming from is obviously, you know, it's our collection of fears, but also, okay, maybe a group of people in one place dug up some dinosaur bones and we're just like, what the hell is that? You know, <laughs> like, imagine like not knowing what dinosaurs are and just uncovering like a T-Rex skull or something. You just be like, 
Ah, okay. <laughs> so that was a thing. Yeah, so that that would scare you. And yeah. I'm sure there would be people who were like, how stories change. It's like, oh, remember how George discovered that dragon thing? Hmm. What, he slayed the dragon? He killed the dragon? Yeah, yeah, and he saved all these people. It's like, I can see how that would evolve and change. And Well, it's where fantasy and imagination fill in the gaps for understanding should we talk into like say early civilizations and so you know people used to think that the, the sun was a god and if you weren't if you didn't do stuff right he wouldn't come up in the morning it's the same similar approach to this like you're saying if somebody you know happened upon like a fossil in the, in a uh in a cliffside or something like that they wouldn't know they wouldn't go oh that's a that's a diplodocus or something like that you know way back way way back that have been like at this ancient creature that lived before us and they'd have filled in all the gaps themselves with sort of magical thinking and and mm. sort of yeah i think that i think you're pretty on the on point there really <laughs> with that with that whole idea of, of dragons and what they represent and and like I said the weird multicultural um proliferation of the what a dragon is you know they, they vary from culture to culture but they are still always ultimately large scaly bastards that breathe fire they breathe fire and they fly and they fulfill the role of all predators in a way, which is very interesting, I think, on a psychological level at least. One thing that I would actually love to see, and I don't I don't even know if this still I should, I should look this up to be honest, but I would like to see if anyone has done a research project which is a comparison of the fossil record in certain regions of the world compared to their depiction of dragons. <laughs> and whether yeah. there is a link between Maybe in a place where griffins are more of a thing. I don't know. Maybe triceratopses were found around there. I don't know. Like, just yeah, just that that kind of thing. I think I think we're going on a bit of a tangent here. Yes, we are. We're kind of going. We're, just, we're both just enjoying our love of mythology and mytho- mythological creatures here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Going going back to the archetype thing. I mean, they are really useful low resolution frameworks, mm. and we should try in our stories to have a range of these. And the hero's journey thing has appeared again and again. And okay, you know, maybe you want to change it. Maybe you want to do it in a different way. But having an ally, having a mentor, having a guardian character at some point, having a shadow, having a hero, they're good things to have. And shapeshifter mm. characters are interesting. So I'm just thinking about your story now. I mean, obviously you've got Dora, who's your hero. And then I think you've got Inago, like he's an intro. Like this is the thing as well with these archetypes, and I think I'm just going to make this point now with Inago is they can fulfil multiple roles. Yeah, you know, so Inago is a mentor figure, but he's also a shapeshifter. Mm. And from the way you're saying, he, he will shapeshift. He into, will literally shapeshift eventually. Yeah. yeah, into the shadow maybe, and so that's fine. You don't have to have a mentor. There's so many things where the mentor is the bad guy in the end. Uh, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. I mean... It's, it's no, no, like, I, yeah, no, it's fine. I was just... <laughs> and it's an archetype, and yep. it's a trope, and if you handle it badly, it will come across as a cliche, but if you handle it well, it'll be refreshing, and it'll be good, and it'll be entertaining, and that's what you want. Yeah, I so, think it's sometimes we, like, we get back on the roller coaster, even though we've been on it before because we know that we enjoy that particular roller coaster so as long as the the ride is enjoyable you'll always go back to it so doing something that's been done before isn't necessarily a bad thing it's just about what your twist on it is yeah and like even saying not necessarily a bad thing it isn't a bad thing this is why we have genres 
True. <laughs> you know, this, this is why we have mysteries. This is why we have dramas. This is why we have romance. This, you know, we know what we're going to get when we sit down to a drama. Yeah. We've got certain expectations when we go and watch an action movie compared to sitting down to watch drama. And again, it's this thing I've mentioned before of going back to your reader. Who is your reader? What are their expectations? And it's about respecting the genre that you're writing in. Now, I'm not talking about this in terms of you're writing a fantasy. That's almost like a shelf in a bookshop. You know what I mean? I'm talking about genres in terms of is it an adventure? Is it a drama? Is it a romance? Is it a coming of age story? Like, I think you're doing a coming of age story, aren't you? Where a person is going through the world and learning. And I think it will evolve into becoming a man versus state kind of story where mm-hmm. Dora will be going against Inigo and yeah like Inigo will become the state yeah and then yeah. her resistance to him will essentially yeah it will become that story of like you said the man versus the state again going against the norm for the the greater good but all yeah. these stories have been done millions of times <laughs> <laughs> you know these stories are ancient i mean that all these structures are, have been in our heads and we are, in a way, pre-wired for story. Just to diverge a little bit, the first the first stories were told around fires in caves, and those stories were just about what happened in the day. And I think it is retelling and, and, and recounting things is a huge part of our social evolution. It, it's defined how language works down to every, every like granular part of the, the way we express ourselves and the way we communicate with other people have you got any questions you want to ask about that is there anything that that is troubling you about archetypes or anything like that or um not now not though that we've kind of i've always sort of struggled with the definition i mean i obviously know to avoid stereotypes but i think it was more the question of of archetypes for me but you know pretty much a lot of what we've spoken about has cleared that up really and i think i've got a, a better idea of when i'm sort of start to finally like all the characters I've got planned out, mm. when I finally start to write them, you know, their actions, the words, how they carry themselves and all sorts of things like that. It's, I feel like a bit more, I feel more comfortable with it now, just generally because of what we've spoken about, the way you can sort of mix archetypes and play them off against each other. And especially with the hero's journey and those definitions where they are broad but that's the good thing about them because then it allows you to play about with them more like say who's a guardian and who's a trickster and is that what they'll always be can they change into something else and we just actually just sparked a little thing in my brain talking about like in this this world i'm writing the idea is that you have to be very strongly defined as a person as a personality you have to define yourself but then how do you change yourself as well? Like, how do you grow um, and not stagnate in a place where you have to be very firm? And I've always felt that, you know, when when people in the real world go through periods of change, who they are becomes a little bit fuzzy as they start to question maybe ideas and preconceptions. And that might be an interesting thing to sort of explore in the book in terms of like, obviously, Dora's biggest first challenge is to find definition and self-actualization, and that'll be going down one path and she'll be influenced by Inigo. But then when she realizes that maybe the extent of his manipulation of her, she's going to have to try and be a different person or do things for a different reason. And in a world where you can't be unsure, 
it's going to be fun to play with that idea of sort of character growth that is also like a threat if it's not done say if it's uh, not done right or not done with with some certainty like you, you have to move, try and move from one certain idea to another which obviously normally tends to go against a lot of human psychology in terms of what we think of as objective and subjective remember you can follow me on the twitter it's at jl cronshaw I'm also on Instagram now. It's John Cronshaw Author. That's J-O-N-C-R-O-N-S-H-A-W. You can also email me if you've got any questions. It's john at johncronshaw.com. If you want to check out the Stop Booking Around book, just go on to Amazon and type Stop Booking Around and you can download the book. There's an audio book. There's a paper book. <laughs> and there's a, uh, What's that? Yeah, yeah, there we go. There's a Kindle version as well. So <laughs> download that, read it, spot the show. That'd be awesome. So until next time, cheerio. Bye.